May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What's it like to be identified with a condemned and crucified man? It's uncomfortable at times. The, uh, the, as the Last Supper, the end of the Last Supper approaches at uh, the end and Jesus' arrest comes near, the disciples display three misunderstandings about the life that awaits them. The life in identification with a condemned and crucified man. Now we can learn a lot from their muddles uh, because we also are like them learning how to live as people united to and identified with a condemned and crucified man. Like the disciples and everybody else in the world, we instinctively admire the things that the world counts as great things. We tend to want to be self-dependent and we don't like being on what looks like the losing team. And yet, in the eyes of the world, a crucified man appears a weak and defeated failure. See, as we come to terms with what it is like to be bound up with the crucified, the crucified Jesus, we're going to try and take to heart this morning these three lessons with humility. Just some context. Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover meal. They're remembering how God rescued his people from Egypt uh, from, and uh, how the shed blood of the lamb, as Adam showed last week so, so uh, graphically, the, the, the shed blood protected the Israelite homes from God's judgment. But at the last supper of Jesus, he takes the, the cup and pours out the wine and says, this is my blood poured out for you. His blood, like the blood of the lamb in the Passover, will rescue his people from judgment forever. But then came the shocking revelation. One member of the group will betray Jesus. Now, did that prompt a kind of heartfelt self-reflection among them? Nope. Verse 24, which is where our reading began. A dispute arose among them as to which one of them would be considered the greatest. Not self-reflection. Self-promotion. That's what's going on. It was the night of Jesus' self-sacrifice. But they're there bigging up their egos. You know, that discussion on that occasion is about as appropriate as letting out a great big belch at the Queen's tea party. So Jesus corrects them. He corrects the first of three massive misunderstandings that we're going to observe this morning. The first one is they thought it was about self-promotion. In fact, it's about service. Not self-promotion, but service. That's our first heading. So verse 25, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. So the kings of the world, they prize their power and their authority. The more people they control, the more resources they control, the greater they are. And, I love Jesus' humor here, they've got the cheek to mask their true motives under the pretense that, in fact, they're just benefactors. We're just looking after you. That's the lie of, of the dictator. 
We're just looking after you, just taking care of you. See, the world's vision of greatness, well, it's, all about, it's more about appearance than about substance. It's more about titles than truth. It's more about serving. Uh, it, it appears to be about serving others, but in fact, it's about serving self. Now, you might, I don't know if you think that's a bit too cynical. Thankfully, most leaders, or a lot of leaders, keep their desire for status, power, and control under some sort of check, generally, certainly in Western culture, and that's something to be profoundly grateful for. But I think it's hard to disagree with that this kind of status, power-driven, self-serving vision of greatness is actually at work in every sphere, isn't it? We see it, I think, it's in business, it's sports, entertainment, education, politics, public service, the church. It's everywhere. I wonder if you recognize it in yourself, too. The thing is, I think we all move in different circles, well, you know, we, or, 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 or somewhat different circles, and we're, but we tend to be drawn magnetically to prize whatever it is that our contemporaries think is great. So I remember back in the days when I was at a music college, sort of establishing musical career, and the thing was, it was how big the gig you got was. That's what it was. And you would just drop into conversation, oh yes, no, of course I'm going down to, you know, Concert Hall X tonight. Oh, why? Oh, because I've got a, I've got a, I've got a concert there. Ooh. And, it's, and it, that's what it's all about. Who's got the biggest gig? Well, the clergy, we have our own version. How many people are in your church? That sort of thing. But it doesn't matter what sphere you're in, there will be those badges how, of, of greatness, which we aspire to. And we feel crushed if we don't have, and we feel jolly pleased with ourselves if we do. That is just how sinful, self-serving human nature works. I don't know, you're, you're, we're all in different spheres. I've just told you about two of mine and how it works. You know, the academic sphere is terrible. Oh, you know, the, all the... the, the the, the workplace, or wh wherever it is, it's always the same. There's always certain badges of greatness that we long to wear and we're hacked off when we can't. Well, the disciples' conversation reveals that they are interested in promoting themselves. You know, I wonder which one of us is going to be the most effective church planter. You know, which one of us is going is to preach to the most number of people? Who's going to have the biggest impact in ministry? You can... You can you, I, I, can, I can hear it among them. And, and that's why we can find it so hard to follow Jesus, all of us. Because Jesus, his leadership is so different to all that the world values. Verse 27, famous words, I am among you as one who serves. Yes, he's the universe's true king, which he tells his disciples, verses 28 to 29, he tells them, he says, that the Father has appointed me king over everything. I'm the ultimate king. And, and, and you, my disciples, you will reign with me, but you need to learn about the kingdom that you're inheriting. The greatest in that kingdom are to be as the youngest. The ruler is to be as the servant. So that's verse 26. He's among them as the youngest. That is the most junior, the one who gets lumbered with the jobs nobody else wants. So John's gospel John's account of this very supper tells us that on, after the supper he washed his disciples' feet. Well, washing the, disciple, washing the feet of his disciples, that was, that was even below the youngest. That was for the slave, the servant. 
And of course, it was all pointing to the fact that Jesus was about to perform the ultimate act of servanthood, which was he was to give his life as a ransom to pay the price for the forgiveness of all who trust in him. He was going to lay himself down entirely for the sake of others. So, is Jesus the ultimate ruler? Yes, the ruler of all. And that means that he lays down his life in the most sacrificial way imaginable. And the disciples had to learn it. They had to kick their addiction to self-promotion. They had to learn to serve. Have you ever heard that teaching before? Mm-hmm. So have I, many, many times. I think most of us know it. Have we realized how deeply this teaching, in all its simplicity, actually impacts us? There's always more to learn. We're like, we're like onions with this one. You, you, the, the lesson on service comes, and you think, oh, you, you think, you think oh, I'm doing all right, I'm doing all right, and then you suddenly realize a whole layer comes off, and you think, oh, my word. I'm so far from actually wanting to serve anybody but myself. It's so insidious. Self-serving. It's written. It's serving myself. That is written. You know the, the writing in a stick of rock. That's, that serving self it is written right through the core of us. So, serving self, it's like a camouflaged snake that hides itself even from ourselves. So we can appear to be serving others. We can even convince ourselves that's what we're doing. But at the very same moment, it actually is all about me. Do you know, I think the telltale sign that I've learned in myself about to know what's really going on is the moments of frustration. That's when you discover what's really driving you. So the snake is unmasked um, in that sort of self-pitying anger that says, I deserve so much more for all I've put in. Or um, the, the kind of the, you know, that, that, just that... I, you know, I've, I've, but it's not fair. I've worked so much harder than everybody else, and oh, or um, the envy that says, oh, so I wish I had their gifts, and they're not so unfair. It's when we're frustrated. It's when our will is crossed that we really discover what's driving us. These attitudes give the game away. It's the service of self. Ultimately, actually, it's. It's the cross. We're all slaves to this, really, deep down. It's the cross. It's by the cross that Jesus changes all this. Because his self-sacrifice on the cross is, doesn't only expose the snake. His self-sacrifice actually defeats the snake and beats it. His self-sacrifice gives us a new power, a new vision for the life, lived for the love of God and of neighbor and new power actually to do it. You know, the thing is, our motives can never become entirely pure in this life, um, and that mustn't stop us from serving. Otherwise, we'd, no, we wouldn't, would never do anything. We'd be so riddled with, gosh, my, 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 my motives are so impure. No, we, we've got to get on with, 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 with doing things, recognizing that our motives will never be pure, but we've just got to stay close to the crucified Jesus. And the cross of Jesus in our thoughts and prayers as we relearn what life is actually about from him. So not self-promotion, but service. That's the first thing this morning. Here's the second lesson that the disciples learned that night. Not self-reliance, but dependence. Not self-reliance, but dependence. So Jesus has got some very sobering words about the hours that lay ahead. And the sobering words are not only about the physical earthly realm, 
Look at verse 31 if you've got the Bible open, because Jesus gives a glimpse into the unseen spiritual conflict that is about to play out. He says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Which is terrifying. Satan, the rebellious angel, the devil, far more powerful than any human being or any human fleshly force at all. He wants to sift the disciples as wheat. So the wheat is sifted so that the light chaff is separated from the heavy grains and blown away. Which is what Satan wants to do to the faith of Peter and to all disciples. So just notice a couple of things about the request of Satan here. First, we need to take it very seriously. He wants to destroy. He will flay Jesus' people alive if he got his way. And especially note what he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy our faith. That's what he wanted to destroy in Peter. He wants to destroy our faith. There is a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual enemy to our faith. We must be alert to this and not naive. We must be alert. But then that leads to a second point, a wonderful point, which is that we need to notice, which is that Satan doesn't always get his way. Because he can only do what the Lord permits him to do. He has to ask the Lord God for permission. He is not God. He is just a creature. And in this case, in the case of Peter, he's not going to get permission. God is not going to let Satan sift the disciples like wheat. Why? Why not? But well, look at verse 35. This is such a wonderful verse. Jesus says to Simon Peter, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The lesson here is that Peter is completely and utterly dependent on Jesus, his great high priest. Because that's how Jesus is acting here. He's praying for his people. That's what a priest does. He's representing them before God and defending them against the accusations and the power of the enemy. Which is, of course, how Jesus still acts as he sits there at the right hand of the Father in heaven, representing all his people before the Father. When Satan tempts me to despair, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Jesus, the great high priest, who stands and intercedes for us because there are spiritual forces at work against us which we would have no power to resist. In fact, there are forces in this world which would sweep us away as well as his people. But Jesus prays for his people, and in him we are completely safe. The lesson being, of course, that we've got to depend on him entirely. But Peter hasn't learned the lesson. This is the moment to be humble, for grateful talk. But Peter's just full of fighting talk. Because Jesus has implied that Peter's going to turn away. Because he says, you know, when you've turned back, strengthen the brothers. But Peter's not going to turn away. I'm not going to turn away. He says, I don't need your prayer, Jesus. I'll be fine. I can handle myself. And, um, you know, nothing daunts Simon Peter. Verse 33 says, Peter, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Look at me. Self-reliance. It's actually the, 
the close cousin of self-promotion. So something so exhilarating about self-reliance. You know, I know how to handle myself. I've got what it takes. No matter what life throws at me, I'm the big man. I'm in control. And um, that, you know, it makes us feel big. Whereas dependence makes us feel small. Because it's frightening to recognize that I'm not in control and need to rely on somebody else to guard and shield me. But I'm not in control. Whether I recognize it or not, I'm never in control. Any illusion of control in my life that I control it is, is, an, is an illusion. Well, Jesus predicted that Peter um, will deny him that night three times and that he will run away, which is exactly what happened. So Peter discovered that self-reliance was a delusion. He couldn't follow Jesus to the cross. But then he did come back. What brought him back? What brought him back to strengthen the brothers? But of course, it's the prayer of Jesus that he didn't even think he needed. He should have depended on it all along, how different that night could have been for him. What a powerful lesson for the church in all ages. Not self-reliance, but dependence on Jesus who stands for us in the Father's presence, speaking for us, protecting us and all his people from forces that would otherwise rub us into the dust. So not self-promotion, but service. Not self-reliance, but dependence. Here's the third thing. Not cross-avoidance, but cross-acceptance. Not cross-avoidance, but cross-acceptance. Because life was about to change for the disciples. Of course it was. Now they are to be identified with an outlaw a condemned man, a crucified man. And that means accepting new circumstances. So Jesus highlights the change that is about to take place by reminding them of days gone by. He says, do you remember when I sent you on mission in days gone by? Verse 35, he says, when I sent you back in, back in those days, I sent you without a purse or a bag or sandals. So did you lack anything? No, nothing, they said. Because in those days, Jesus was at the height of his admittedly paper-thin, popularity. Everyone thought he was great. And so the, you know, the villages of Judea were only too glad to take the disciples in and provide for them. They thought they were wonderful. But it won't be like that anymore. Public opinion will condemn Jesus and his followers. There will be no more relying on public goodwill. Now, says Jesus, you will need a purse, a bag, and a sword. You will need to supply yourselves in your mission for the world and among yourselves, you'll get from among yourselves, you will need to give consideration to these things. Sell your cloak and buy a sword if necessary. I'll come back to the swords in a moment. But why this change of circumstances? Well, verse 37 explains, Jesus explains, he says, it's going to be like this because it is written and he was numbered with the transgressors, the sinners criminals and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me it's a prophecy from Isaiah from now on Jesus will be considered a criminal condemned outside the law and his followers will be in exactly the same position it didn't take long yes they rode a wave of popularity in Jerusalem in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles but by chapter 4 they are public enemies 
for their identification with Jesus. They will be publicly flogged, they will be stoned, and they will be scattered. And that is even before they have been pushed out of Jerusalem. In AD 64, there was a great fire in Rome, and the emperor Nero blamed the fire on the Christians. It was convenient for him to do so. And the first major persecution of believers across the Roman Empire, the first official one, broke out. Let me read to you from the Roman historian Tacitus. Back from the day, he wrote this. Listen. Nero inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of people hated for their abominations called Christians, which is how he spells it, Christians. Um, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, in other words, Jesus, suffered the extreme penalty crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurator, uh, procurators, Pontius Pilate. And as a result of the crucifixion of, G of Christ, a most mischievous superstition was checked for the moment. But it has broken out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even here in Rome. Do you see? Those Roman Christians were, well, they were used as torches at Nero's dinner parties, lit while alive, covered in pitch and lit, set alight. They knew very well what it meant to be identified with the crucified outlaw, Jesus, the one who suffered, in, in Tacitus' words, the extreme penalty. See, beware any version of Christianity that is respectable in the eyes of the society you live in. Be very, very uh, um, suspicious of it. Automatically, we should, if, if, if a version of Christianity gains respectability in the eyes of its age, it is almost certainly ducking the cross. It is almost certainly sitting shy of what the Bible and the gospel really is. It's so important to realize that, that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is about a condemned outlaw. And so if everybody is going, well, in Jesus' words, if everyone speaks well of any particular version of Christianity in any particular age, it is almost certainly a perversion. Very interesting. We need to understand and accept the cross. At this point, the disciples, though, wanted to prevent the cross. They wanted to avoid it. They wanted to stop it from happening. And that's why they latch on to Jesus' mention of the word sword. Right, it's time to talk about the swords. See what the disciples say? Um, they take an inventory. They say, look, we've got two swords. That's enough, says Jesus. What does he mean? Have you ever puzzled over this one? I know a lot of people have. I don't have time to describe all the different views. I don't even, I'm sure I don't even know all the different views. I know a lot of them. Um, there are lots of different views about what Jesus meant here. But basically the issue is whether when Jesus says that is enough, he means that is enough talking about swords, now be quiet. Or whether he means, okay, two swords, yep, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an appropriate number of swords. 
In other words, it's, it's valid to have a sort of a self-defensive level of, of, um, of, of equipment um, in the face of a threat. And so perhaps the church finds in that a justification for moderate use of defensive force. That's, that's basically how the issue tends to, to, to divide. Now, the second possibility that it's a, about self-defense is actually highly relevant in some situations. Mercifully, it's not in ours. If we were meeting for our service this morning in the northern part of Nigeria, where Boko Haram have been um, marauding around, slaying whole villages, um, would, would it be right for the PCC to decide to have two chaps outside with AK-47s on their laps? I mean, I, you know, that is a serious question that many people are facing. Um, it would be a fascinating one to discuss later on and to think about. Perhaps this verse here has something to say about that. I don't think it does. I've, I don't think Jesus' words here about the sword are, a general, uh, are establishing a general principle of self-defense. I think you perhaps could justify that from other parts of the Bible. That's, that's a, a discussion for another day. And we should pray for those people making decisions like that in the north of Nigeria and other places because those are not easy decisions. But I think these words here in this specific context are actually about the specific events of that night. They are about the cross and the events to unfold later in the arrest of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is laying down his life according to the Father's plan. Nothing will stop him. But the disciples will certainly try. Their offer of the two swords is their misguided attempt to halt God's purposes and prevent the arrest from taking place and therefore the cross from playing out. And that is, I think, confirmed when Peter confronts the large, well-armed arrest squad with one of those two swords. He steps forward and slices off um, one of the, 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 peop the, the people's ears. And Jesus says to him, verse 51 of this, uh, uh, of this chapter, no more of this. No. Because nothing will prevent him from going to the cross. The disciples fail to understand that actually, in reality, God's kingdom, his power, his purpose, his victory only comes about through the cross. So they don't accept it. They try to avoid it. And so do we. It takes years. It takes a lifetime of following Christ to really accept the cross in our lives really to accept it. I'm talking to us all, myself as well. We hate to be weak. Forgetting that God's strength is supremely revealed in our weakness, that's the way of the cross. We hate to be thwarted when God's purpose is sometimes worked out precisely through our frustrations, that's the way of the cross. We despair when it seems that truth is defeated, hanging by a thread, forgetting that God's victory is often demonstrated even as the world tramples his word underfoot. We hate as Christians to be considered outsiders, forgetting that Jesus won the victory at that shameful crucifixion site outside the city. See, this is the shape of the cross in our lives. We balk against it. We chafe under it. We don't find it easy to accept or understand. 
yet it is the way of the cross. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, are identified with a man the world condemns and crucified. And that is how we must get used to living. So not self-promotion, but service. Not self-reliance, but dependence. Not cross-avoidance, but cross-acceptance. So in the quiet now, let the spirit of the risen Jesus lodge these lessons in our hearts and minds, perhaps highlighting where we need to pay particular attention to what it means to be united to a man the world has crucified. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. May that be our own testimony, as it was for the Apostle Paul, that we may walk through this world with Christ, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, in the power of his resurrection. This we ask by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father, and in the name of the same Jesus Christ. Amen.